Well, Dr. House, I'm going to go ahead and share with you. I think I've already spotted your replacement. Luke was sitting here, eyes totally affixed. He's already got the bow tie. <laughs> but he did not move his eyes from the choir the whole time you were singing. It was the, I, was, I was sharing with some of them. I said, look, he's just focused on you. So next minister of music, right here maybe. Our scripture today comes from the gospel according to John. John chapter 15, verse 11. John chapter 15, verse 11. Where Jesus says, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word. We give you thanks for this holy season. And now for the privilege of studying your word together. And now as I stand before these, your people, your church, I pray that this would be your message and not my own. Through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're getting closer. I love the season of Advent as we light the candles and we celebrate what God is doing in our lives, offering us hope and, and love and joy. Today's joy. As we were doing our, our worship planning, we were talking about, you know, now this is the third Sunday of Advent. You know, we'll be lighting the joy candle. And, and someone said, it's pink candle Sunday. You know, this is the Sunday that, that we experience this amazing gift of joy that God gives to us in our lives. So it's an important word, it's an important concept, it's an important gift. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, the word joy is mentioned over 150 times. Now, if you allow us to add to that joyful and joyous, now we're well over 200 times that the Scripture talks to us about joy in our lives. That joy is this gift that God wants the people of God to have this gift of joy, to be joyful, to be joyous. And then if you look at the word rejoice, which is our response to God and how we express our joy, well, rejoice is another 200 plus times. So between joyful, joy, joyous, rejoice, we're well over 400 times that the Scripture talks to the people of God about this gift. Here Jesus said, I've said these things to you so that my joy, it's not a joy you have to go look for and try to, to create and develop in your own lives, but my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. God's not looking for you to have just some sense of eh, but true joy, complete joy. When you were lighting the candle, the scripture was read from Luke chapter 2 when when the angels are sharing with the shepherds, don't be afraid because I've come to bring you good news of what? Great joy. Great joy. Not just some joy, but I'm bringing you good news of great joy. This is an awesome gift that God has given to us and it's for you and for all the people. 
And in Isaiah 35, the the Scripture that you read as well, which was about the captives returning to the holy city of Jerusalem where the temple of God would dwell, then, then God says, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. Jerusalem with singing, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Joy. Joy is about our relationship with God and and it results from knowing God and and accepting this gift of Christmas. James Moore tells the story about a a family who celebrated Christmas in much the same way Nancy and I did when our kids were little. In our home, we have a variety of nativity scenes. And and there are the thou shalt not touch nativity scenes. You know, those are the ones that, that you share with the kids. You can look at these, but don't touch. You know, you even put them a little bit high where they can't quite get there. They can see them, but they can't. And then we had, you know, the, the children's nativity scene. Those are the ones that the kids are able to play with. You know, they're, they're able to move around the pieces and, and to play with them a little while. And, and, and it's just kind of fun to watch children with a nativity scene. They love to move the cow around. They love to move the donkey around. Here are the shepherds. Here are the wise men. But of course, most every child knows... The one character you really want to play with is the baby Jesus. And oftentimes we would be looking, where's the baby Jesus? And so James is telling the story, James Moore tells the story about a family who did the same thing. They had a a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son. And they had the nativity scene that the children could play with. But mom was constantly looking for Jesus. Constantly saying to the kids, okay, where's Jesus? And they go looking around. She'd be helping around the house or something. And they would be, oh, there's Jesus on the coffee table. Let me get Jesus. Let's take Jesus back to mom and daddy and put him back in the little manger. You know, where's Jesus? Well, there's Jesus on the end table. Who put Jesus in the windowsill? Let's put Jesus back over. You know, and Jesus was constantly moving. For a little one, Jesus moved a lot. But then Christmas was about over. And mom was starting to pack up the decorations when she realized once again Jesus was missing. And so she she started asking the question, you know, where's Jesus? And she called the children to come in and and she looks at the little five-year-old daughter and she goes, where's Jesus? And the five-year-old daughter did what five-year-olds do when you ask them a question. I don't know. I didn't take Jesus. And then she looks at the little two-year-old and said, do you know where Jesus is? And, and, and he started jabbering. But it takes the gift of interpretation sometimes with a two-year-old to figure out exactly what they're saying. Because the jabbering was occurring. He knew what he was saying, but it was hard for the others to get it. Where's Jesus? And mom knew he had something to say. So, so you know where Jesus is? And finally, the, the little boy reached up and took mom's hat and, and they moved toward the bedroom. And the little boy pointed at the bed, and mom said, So Jesus is in your bed? And so she goes pulling back the covers, but she didn't see Jesus. Where's Jesus? I don't see Jesus in your bed. And the little two year old goes over, reaches under the pillow, and pulls out the baby Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, the two year old understood Christmas. The two year old got it. Because what's one of the most terrifying or scary times, I guess, for a, for a little one? And, and that's when it's nighttime and the lights are going to go out and mom and dad are going to go into a different room. And, and, and so it was like the two-year-old understood, mom and dad may go in a different room and the lights may go out, but as long as Jesus is under the pillow, we're okay. As long as Jesus is close 
Which is why in Matthew, the angel says to, to Joseph, call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And the child knew, as long as I have God, I still have joy. Joy is this amazing gift. It, sometimes we mix up with happiness or pleasure. I mean, happiness is good. I mean, we want to be happy. Don't worry, be happy. We want to be happy, but happiness is temporary. Sometimes we're happy, then later we're sad, and, and then happiness returns, and then sometimes we're sad, and happiness varies. It's so temporal. Or pleasure. I mean, we all like to have fun. We all like to have pleasure in our lives. But pleasure is another one of those things that is it's so temporal, we just can't seem to always grasp it. Joy is deeper than that. Joy is about knowing who we are and, and our connection with God and, and seeing where does our fulfillment come from. The book of Ecclesiastes is often credited to King Solomon. Some refer to the preacher or the teacher who shares the stories of Solomon, but in Ecclesiastes 2, you get to hear this, this, this story about how Solomon tried to find joy. He tried to find happiness, he tried to find pleasure, he tried to find fulfillment in all the wrong places. Solomon was the king, the son of David, that that just seemed to have it all. He had more horses than anybody. He had chariots with Bluetooth before it even came out for us. I mean, he had the finest chariots, finest horses, finest palaces, plenty of wives, plenty of concubines. I mean, he had it all, it would appear. Well, catch what happens in Ecclesiastes 2. Solomon says, I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this also was vanity. I want to pause there for a moment because sometimes when we think of vanity, we have another image in our mind. But in the Hebrew, the word for vanity here means a puff of air, a vapor, a breath. means something that you can't get your hands on. You, you reach for it and, and think you can grasp it, but, but then there's just nothing there to grab hold of. That's what vanity means here. Solomon goes on, he said, I said of laughter, it's mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I search with my mind how to cheer my body with wine. My mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone before me in all of Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold, treasures of the kings and the provinces. I got some seniors, both men and women, and the delights of the flesh, many concubines. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward of my toil. But then Solomon reflects back. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had spent in doing it. And again, all was vanity. Like a breath of vapor. Something so close and yet not able to grab. He goes on and said, like chasing after wind. Like chasing after wind. And there was nothing, he said, to be gained under the sun. I mean, we, we look for things that are going to make us feel happy and pleasurable and complete and, and joyful. And sometimes we, we look in all the wrong places. I, I remember when I was growing up, I grew up out in the country and my dad was a diesel mechanic and he worked hard with his hands and he worked 60, 70, 80 hours a week to make sure that, that we had everything that we needed. We had clothes and food and shelter. But we grew up in a small little house, one little bathroom, Five kids, mom and dad, three bedrooms. It was a tight little place where we grew up. But we grew up happy. But, but I always thought, you know, if I could ever make this much, I will be happy. Or we think if I, you know, you start out in a church and you go, you know, if I, if I could just get into a church this size, then I will be happy. And there's always something that we're thinking, if I get the next promotion, if I get the next raise, if I can get the little bigger house, because this is the starter house, and if I can get to this house or to that, then I'm going to be happy, then I'm going to be complete, then I'm going to be full. And what I've noticed as I've been in ministry, because well, I've had the opportunity to serve in some amazing places, From we've served and lived out in country areas and rural areas, We've also served in some pretty affluent areas. We, we've served in Oak Ridge, which is a bedroom for Winston-Salem, Greensboro, High Point. Then we moved to, to Lake Norman. And, and, and so there was, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of affluence in Lake Norman. And, and then we moved to South Charlotte. And, and there's a lot of affluence in South Charlotte. But you know what I've learned? Whether you're in the small little three-bedroom or you're in the 8,000 square feet, whether you have this title or that title, there are a lot of people that are hungry and missing something. Joy doesn't always come. It's like a vapor that you think, if I just grasp this, I'll have it. Joy's deeper than that. Joy is about our relationship with God, and that's the only place that we can get the fulfillment and the comfort. It's why St. Augustine then said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You've made us for yourself, and we can look everywhere else. We can look for anything else to give us fulfillment. It will not happen until we find our rest in you. I was looking up some scriptures and some studying about joy in the scripture, and, and Robert Dean shared... In, his, in the dictionary, he said, the Christian dictionary, he said, joy in the Christian life is in direct proportion to the believer's walk with God. And I'm going to be honest with you, when I read that, I went, I don't like that. Joy in the believer's life and the Christian life is in direct proportion to the believer's walk with God. And I'll tell you why. People think sometimes when you become a pastor that you've got it all. When you become a pastor, you're, you understand all wisdom, knowledge, you're holy. You never have a bad thought, never have an evil thought, never have a problem. Every, you become a pastor, everything's perfection, you know it all. It is not true. I'm just going to tell you, it's not. My wife will tell you, it's not. <laughs> it's not. 
I remember a friend of mine, Bishop McCleskey, telling me one time, you know, that, that he came home and, and, and his wife was telling him what to do. And she, he looked at her and he said, Honey, I am a United Methodist bishop. And she said, I don't care who you are, take the trash to the road. <laughs> I mean, we're human. You're just human. And so I will say, I share that with you to share this, and that is that we all struggle, and there are times in my life that, that I struggle finding joy. I think we all do at times where sometimes there, there are just those days where, where you just feel like there's so much heavy stuff. How do you find joy in the midst of this? And John Wesley, who, who kind of laid the foundation of our Wesleyan theology and our faith, he shared with us, remember, that, that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, that that is not the end of our spiritual journey, it's actually the beginning. And that we have a lifetime of growing with Christ and walking with Christ, and we're all on this journey. I'm on the same journey that you are on. We're just called to walk it together. I'm called to walk with you on it. But none of us have arrived calling others, come be where we are. We're all on this journey together, seeking for completeness. Well, we read the scripture from John where Jesus said, I've said these things so that my joy may be in you. My joy will be in you and your joy be made complete. Well, there's a danger when we take just one verse out of context. Do you realize what was happening in Jesus' life when he said this? I mean, when you realize what was happening in Jesus' life when he said this, it's pretty incredible. For example, it was just a couple days earlier that Jesus rode into town on a donkey and people were crying out, save us and waving branches. And Jesus knew that cross is just a couple days away. Do you realize when Jesus said this, he had already met with his disciples in the upper room, washed their feet, celebrated the Passover meal, and told them, I am about to die. I'm about to die. I'm going to be crucified. Crucifixion was death by cruelty. I'm about to be crucified. And yet Jesus is talking about joy. Do you realize that just hours earlier, Jesus had looked at one of his top three disciples? You know, Peter, James, and John had that special place in Jesus' life. And he looked at Peter and said to Peter, you will deny me not once or twice, but you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And Jesus is talking about joy. That he looked at one of his own disciples and said to him, you're the one the one that's dipping with me in the cup, sharing with me, eating with me, you're the one who will betray me and hand me over to the enemy. Wow. Jesus had just said in John 14, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'll come again to receive you to myself. I mean, that's what was going on in Jesus' life when he said, I've said these things so that my joy may be in you. Now that shows you joy and happiness have nothing to do with each other because Jesus still had joy even though he knew he was about to die. Because joy is about knowing I have the embrace of God and I am embraced by God. 
It's about the relationship that no matter what I do, even when I go to the cross, I will not go alone because Jesus is under my pillow. Jesus is that close to me. God is with me. So Jesus is able to say, I said these things to you. It's coming, I guess, from Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, when, when the psalm says that weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And then just a little bit later, right before Jesus is arrested, he will kneel down before God, and in John 17, he prays this beautiful prayer, prays for the disciples, prays for us, the church, because he said he prayed for those who will come to believe. That's you. And then Jesus said, in verse 13, but now I'm coming to you. I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. Isn't that interesting? That as Jesus is preparing to die, the thing he wants to make sure is that you receive the gift of joy. Not just happiness, not just pleasure, but joy that comes from a relationship. You know how we know what brings joy to God? Well, Luke tells us the story in Luke 15 that, that one day Jesus was eating with some tax collectors and some sinners. And it just infuriated the Pharisees, the religious leaders and the scribes. They could not believe that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Because one thing, back in biblical times, if you ate with somebody... That meant that you embraced them. It meant that you accepted them. It wasn't just, you know, we'll eat with anybody today. But back in biblical times, you know, it meant something. If you shared food together at the table, if you experienced the kitchen table in somebody's home, man, that's a statement that we have a relationship. And Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the people are furious going, I cannot believe he's eating with them. I don't know why he's eating with them. They were not at church today. You would think if the preacher was going to go to lunch with somebody, it would be somebody that was in church today. After all, we're the ones who put the money in the offering plate. We're buying the lunch. You would think that he would be eating with us. Why is Jesus not? You know, Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. I can't believe, cannot believe, man, from God eating with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus heard it and he went, you people. Because let me tell you a story. Actually, I'm going to tell you three. He said one time there was this shepherd. He had a hundred sheep. He got to counting and he noticed he only had 99. And it drove him crazy that one was missing. It drove the shepherd crazy that one was missing, so he, he looked everywhere. Actually, Jesus said he, he kept looking until he, he found it. He wasn't going to quit. And when he found it, man, he was so overjoyed that he picked up the lamb and, and he brought it back and placed it back in the fold with the others. And he rejoiced. He told the others, man, one of, one of my lambs was missing, but I, I found it. Rejoice with me. Celebrate with me. The joy. And, and then Jesus said in, in, in Luke 15, verse 70, he goes, just so I tell you, there's more joy in heaven. More joy in heaven. What brings joy to heaven? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now to make sure we get it, Jesus said, oh, let me put it another way. There was this widow. And when you hear in Luke the word widow, automatically think poorest of the poor. Because this was, this was before Social Security, retirement, pension, 401Ks, Medicare, Medicaid, and all those. I mean, if you, you were a widow back in those times, especially when women didn't work out of the home a lot during that time, I mean, they, you could be destitute. If you didn't have a family who would love and care for you, you could be destitute. 
That's, the, that's what Luke wants you to see. The poorest of the poor. She had ten coins. Ten. Just ten. I mean, that's it. After this, do I live? Do I not? This is it. She lost one of them. She lost one that about drove her crazy. Little tiny copper coin. It's about that big. She dropped it on a dirt floor in her house. Can you imagine the panic? Do you know how hard it is to find a little tiny copper coin on a dirt floor? I mean, it's kind of like when you drop your contacts. Nobody move. Right? Till you find that thing. Because one little kick of the dirt, you'd never find that coin again. And she turned that house upside down. Jesus said she turned the house upside down till she found it. You know what she did when she found it? She rejoiced. She called her friends and said, you won't believe this. I was down to ten coins and I lost one of them. And I turned my house upside down and when I found it, man, you won't believe how happy I am that I found it. The joy that I have. Jesus said, you know what? There's more joy in heaven over one who repents. And then he said, there was this, there was this man and he had two kids. And, and so he, one of the, the younger son came up to him and said, Daddy, I hate it here. I'm done. I hate living here. I hate this life. I'm gone. I mean, there is nothing more painful than for a parent than to hear one of your kids look at you and go, I hate you. I'm done with you. I'm out of this place. I'm gone. Then the kid has the nerve to say to Daddy, so go ahead and give me what's mine. Speaking his inheritance. You know, because the younger son would have got about a third, the older son would have got about two-thirds. But I can just imagine going up to my daddy going, I hate it here, I hate living out here, I hate tools and mechanicing, and I hate all this kind of stuff, and so I am gone from here, you'll never see me again, so go ahead and give me what's mine. And my daddy would have said, boy, I'm about to give you what's mine. <laughs> it would have been a different conversation, I think, at my house growing up. <laughs> the son gets his part of the inheritance, and he leaves. I can imagine the tears in the father's eyes as he watched his kid walk away. Can you imagine your kid walking away after telling you, I hate it and I never want to be here again? And the kid goes out and we're told that he, he loses everything in riotous living. And then he hits the bottom. He's so hungry, he's feeding pigs. And as a Jew, that meant you're at the bottom of the bottom. And so he, he realized, I'm going to go home. And I'm going to tell my dad, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just hire me to be a servant. I mean, you see how low he's gone? Because before he was a son, with all the benefits of being the son, and he hated that and wanted to leave. Now he's going to come back home, but not as a son, just as a hired hand. Do you see how far he's dropped? So he starts coming home, and he's practicing. Read the story. He's practicing all the way home. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just hire me. Just hire me as one of you hired me. And then we're told that the father saw him. My favorite verse in the Bible. You've heard me tell that before. It's my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Is that the father, while he was still far off, his father saw him. And what I love about that is that meant the daddy was looking for him. That the son may have given up on dad, but dad never gave up on the son. The father never gave up hope that his son would come home. And so he sees his son coming 
from way far off. Now, somebody had an idea years ago that we ought to read through the Bible in a year, and I guess that's okay, but that means we read it way too fast. Slow down, catch the story. Because what's happening is, is, is the son's coming home and he's been practicing what he's going to say. But notice what happens. The father does not stand there going, uh-huh, saw this coming. Now what happened? The father ran to him. Did you catch that? The son has not repented yet. The son has not yet said, I messed up. But dad ran to him anyway. Dad didn't know what he was going to say. But dad ran to him because he loved him and he missed him. And then, catch this, dad hugs him before the son can can give his spill. The father's embracing him. Go back and read it. It's powerful. And then the son goes, but dad, but dad, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Paul understood this in Romans 5.8 when he goes, God proves his love for us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Which comes first? God's offer of grace or our acceptance of it? Man, God always acts first. God acts, we react. And so the father is embracing his son and his son's going, but dad, but dad. And after the dad hears, you know what he said? He said, go and get the robe. Go get the shoes. Bring the ring. Why? Because the ring was a sign of the son. You belong to the family. That was the family sign. The son had just said, I'm no longer worthy. God said, put on the ring. Because you're my kid. And the father embraced him. And Jesus said, now do you get it? Joy is the embrace. Joy is the embrace of when the father embraces us. And what brings joy to God is when God fills us embrace. Joy is the embrace, not with happiness or pleasure, but with God. That's why Paul then says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. It's the embrace. Well, David was the great king in all of Israel. But David royally messed up one day, didn't he? Went out one day, out onto his rooftop, looks over, sees another man's wife bathing. And David, a man after God's own heart, man, he starts ticking off the Ten Commandments pretty quick. Thou shalt not covet, boom, gone. Thou shalt not commit adultery, gone. Thou shalt not commit adultery, you know, murder, gone. I mean, he just starts blowing through the Ten Commandments on a spiral that is unreal. Trying his best to make things work. Tries to cover up his mess. Can't pull it off. Finally, Finally, when he realizes his relationship with God has been so broken, he repents. Psalm 51. He said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. But catch verse 12. David says to God, Restore unto me the joy 
of your salvation. I need to feel you hold me again. And I want to hold you again. Like a son returning to the father after riotous living. I, I need to feel you hold me. And I want to hold you again. It's the embrace. That's joy is the embrace with God. Jesus says to you this Christmas, I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. Will you pray with me? God, we're grateful for the gift of joy. We oftentimes in our lives try to reach out for something to make us complete. But it's like vapor. It's like a puff of air. It's like chasing after the wind. We, we reach for it and there's just nothing substantive there. Joy's deeper. It's about the embrace with you, the relationship with you. It's what brings you joy in heaven and it's what brings us joy in our lives. During Christmas, you reach out to us once again like a baby stretching out its arms from a manger. Reaching out to embrace and to be embraced. And when we hold each other, that's joy that lasts forever. So God, we pray that each one of us here today will experience the gift of joy this Christmas. Your joy. It's not something we have to manufacture. You have the joy that you offer through your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, we pray that our joy would be made complete, not partial joy. You're not looking for your people to experience a taste with the fullness. So God, we pray that we would be able to embrace and be embraced by you and that we might have joy, your joy, complete in our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As we sing our closing hymn, the altar, it's always open. If you feel a little bit like David, great place to say, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And if you feel the embrace, it's a great place to say, God, that feels great. Joy to the world. Thank you.